I'm riding and I'm on a wet bridge and somehow my bike gets turned around and I crash off this bridge and land on my head, crack my helmet, get a severe concussion. And this is two days before I'm supposed to defend my title at the race. Information and inspiration. It's the Goo Pinnacle Podcast with Yuri Household. Hey, Yuri, how's it going? Oh, I am so excited for today's guest, Fatty. Tell me why. I, well, there's so many reasons why I'm excited to talk to Sonia Looney. Uh, I guess the first and foremost would be that she's done a TED Talk. She has a master's in electrical engineering. She's done solar designing. She's a world she's champion del- cyclist. She's a world champion cyclist. She's dealt with failure. She's a vegan. She meditates. She does yoga. I mean, I could keep going. She does all sorts of amazing stuff. I'm inspired already. Well, let's get her on then. Let's talk to her. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. That was a pretty long list of stuff. I I wasn't kidding when I said that you were inspiring. What makes you tick, Sonia? When I hear that list, I kind of think to myself, wow, that, that's kind of a long list because I don't, I don't dwell on all the things that I've done. I'm, I'm focused on the things that I want to do. But what makes me tick is personal growth. And when you have lots of accomplishments, and I think a lot of people that, that are very driven are, are driven by different things. But for me, the number one thing is just continuing to get better, become a better person, become better at what I do, because that's what motivates and inspires me. And someone asked me this question actually pretty recently. And when they did, it kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And I had to step back and say, wow, like, what is it that drives me? It's, It's not necessarily results or fame or any of those things, because let's face it, we just ride bikes. <laughs> um, but Personal growth is was whenever I look back and say, what do I feel good about and what is success to me? It's being happy in what I'm doing and knowing that I'm moving forward. Being an ex-elementary school teacher, that whole idea of personal growth resonates with me so much because I used to tell my students all the time that they had to do their personal best because not everybody's an A student. Not everybody can win a race. But if you do your homework and you try your hardest and you get a B, well, then you've done your personal best. Um, so that's that's an awesome um, sort of mantra or lesson to, to impart to people, Sonia, to just to, to be on this path of, of personal growth throughout, throughout your life. Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I read this really interesting book um, called Mindset, by, I believe the author is Carol Dweck, and she's a psychologist. And the book is about fixed versus growth mindset. And there's a lot of people in life that go through life with a fixed mindset, thinking that they have a predetermined amount of talent or ability in their life. And the whole point of this book is to tell you that, tell you how and why, and many situations, how you can have a growth mindset, thinking that you can get better. And the thing that struck me the most about this this uh, book that I read was re- how you reward somebody for their effort. And you were mentioning being an elementary school teacher. And a lot of times we reward kids by saying, oh, you're so talented or you're so gifted. Or whenever they get a good result, when they get a good grade or they do well at something, 
that's when we reward them for the result. But really that, that makes people afraid to fail and it makes people afraid to not have a good result because they're not going to get complimented and they're not going to feel good. So the way to, to, to reward somebody is to discuss and comment on how hard they worked and how, how much they tried instead of, oh, you're, you're so perfect or you got this perfect result or you're so gifted. So I thought that was really fascinating. Definitely, definitely. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on Sonia. Like, you don't have the like the traditional. Not that there is a traditional background for a professional athlete, but you have a master's in electrical engineering, and you worked as a solar designer for a while. I'm wondering, can you talk to us a little bit about how that morphed into what you are doing now? Yeah. So I mean. I'm a geek. It's it's true, and I love math. <laughs> when I see people like doing their math homework, I, I secretly get excited and want to help them. So that, that's a fact, and I'm not afraid to say it. But I did engineering because I loved math and science growing up, and I didn't really know what else to do. And a lot of people in my family are engineers, as you might guess. And at the time, you know, when you're in high school, you don't like you're, you're on a journey trying to figure out who you are and what you want to be. And some of us are on that journey for the rest of our lives. <laughs> but at the time I just wanted to go get a four year degree, get out of school, start making money, buy a house. It was, it was a totally different dream of what I had once I started college. <laughs> so I started in the engineering program and I kind of midway through, I wasn't really sure if I really wanted to do it, but I enjoyed the challenge of it because the courses are really hard. And I was taking 18 credit hours and working 20 hours a week. And then I found cycling on top of that um, when I was around 20. So I just kept going through the motions. I finished my um, undergrad, but then I I kept going to Colorado to race my bike every weekend. And I just wanted to to keep racing my bike, but I didn't want to get a full-time job with no flexibility. So I thought, well, I guess I'll go to grad school. So I started applying to all these PhD programs for some reason. I don't know why PhD program. And I got some, some really great opportunities. And one of them was moving to Boulder, Colorado to be in their power electrical engineering program. So I started that program. I moved to Boulder and I was really happy that I could go and have the flexible student lifestyle. And granted, you know, being a student is almost like being an entrepreneur if you're a good student because you do kind of work all the time and you work around the clock, but you're also allowed to have flexibility built in through your day so you don't have to be in a certain place from 9 to 5 or whatever a typical job would be. So I was going to grad school and I didn't really like, I didn't really like it. <laughs> um, but I was, I was taking these biomedical engineering courses and I ended up really liking those because I was fascinated with physiology and learning a bunch of different things about the body. So I ended up specializing in biomedical instrumentation and I, I got to ride for the CU cycling team and we won nationals and it was a really, I was a new cyclist at the time. So it was a really great way to build community. And I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but I, I think that collegiate cycling back when I start was in college way back then is kind of now what's morphed into this um, major NICA high school mountain bike league. And it's really amazing that it's kind of going down the pipeline to younger kids too. So that, well, we can come back to that later, but so I finished my master's degree and thought, oh, I, I, I don't know if I want to do this. 
And, and I just spent all this time doing it. And I guess, you know, a lot of people in the situation would, would think, well, I've spent all this time doing this. So now I need to, I need to go and keep going. So what I did was I started working for a startup company in Boulder and I was fascinated by the idea of working for startups because I was interested in business. So I was designing solar electric and some solar thermal systems for residential and commercial buildings. But my, my one stipulation when I started there was you can, you can pay me by the hour, but I need to have flexibility so I can train and so I can travel. And I'm more than happy to, to take time off without pay because I really want to ride and race my bike. And I'm interested in working here, but this is what I want. And I think that when you're starting a job, being upfront with what you want, I mean, they might, and maybe this is a millennial thing, <laughs> but you know, for me, I wasn't willing to work somewhere that wasn't willing to work with my schedule. So it was really great to have the opportunity to work somewhere that allowed me to use kind of what my expertise was in school, but also have some flexibility to train and race my bike. And from there, you know, I, I was about to give up and this is really important, a really important thing for everybody to consider because we all kind of get to that point in our life where we're doing these, we're going for this dream and it just seems so hard and it seems like you're never going to get there. And I was there, like I was racing my bike and I wasn't, I wasn't like amazing as a cross country racer. Like I could get on the podium in Colorado, but on the national scene, I was like top 20, which isn't near the, isn't near the top. And that's where I wanted to be. And I was working so hard, like trying to, trying to make it go as a, as a pro bike racer, but also working this job. And I thought, you know, I don't like engineering, so I'm going to go go be a PA. I'm going to go to PA school, physician assistant. So I started taking, I went back to school and I started taking all these courses, um, for pre-medical, you know, yeah, it's the same for, for medical school, the same for PA programs. And during that time I switched up my discipline and, and racing and I started racing endurance racing. And then I started doing really well. And by the time I finished all of my prerequisites, my cycling career was going so well that I thought, well, maybe I won't give up. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll just see what happens if I keep pushing. And I wrote a blog post about a backpack and, and this is back in like 2007 when social media was, it was there, but it's not what it is today. And it was really about blogging and this company contacted me. Um, and the company was Ergon. I wrote a, a review on their backpack and they said, Hey, thanks for writing this review. You sent so much traffic to our website. We really would like to talk to you about being on our team. And at this, at this point I was like, what? Like people read my blog. Like I didn't do Google <laughs> analytics. Like I just, I just, I don't know what I was doing. I just was writing it cause I thought it was fun. And they offered me a spot on their Topeak Ergon racing team, which is a really big worldwide known team. And it was a major, major opportunity for me. And I also started working events for Ergon doing sales and marketing and I started working more and more for them. So now I'm working two jobs and racing my bike. And it got to the point where I just said, hey, hey, Ergon, um, I really love working with you guys. Do you want to actually hire me as like a full-time employee? And they said yes. So I quit my job as an engineer. I did a complete 180 um, in my career that I had been working towards for the last six, seven years. And I started doing sales and marketing across the United States for Ergon and starting to race my bike a bit more. That takes some real bravery, 
to make a pivot like that. Yeah. And I, I think the importance is always just having a flexible mind and, and knowing that sometimes you're not going to have all the answers and knowing that your, your long-term future, like when I used to love it, when people ask me what my five, five-year plan is, what my five-year goal is, hmm. and you need to have a direction that you're going towards, but you have to be flexible enough to accept opportunities that come your way that might be a completely different direction than you originally thought. So now when people say, well, what are you, where are you going to be in five years? I tell them I have no idea. And I'm happy. I have no idea. Like I don't want to be working in a, a job or have a career where I know exactly where I'm going to be in five years, because that's for me, that's, that is boring. And I love kind of having to make my own way because again, it comes back to growth and you have to be able to wear tons of hats and figure things out and try and fail and try again and see what happens. And for me, that's, that's why I love what I do. There's also something really invigorating. I think uh, about taking risks too. Um, you know, as scary as that can seem, you know, stepping off the, the, the ledge a little bit, uh, you and I have talked about this, Sonia, as far as our careers go, but, uh, taking that first step can be the hardest thing at first, but then all of a sudden all these new doors can open up that you would never have imagined. Um, and, and you have opened up many doors. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's being willing to step through those doors because the door might be open, but, you don't know what's on the other side and you don't know if that door is going to close behind you and you can never go back to the way it was before. So yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what drives you and what you want to do and what your goals are. But for me, I love it when a door opens and I'm looking for the door. Like a lot of people don't look for the door and then they think I'm just unlucky or I, I don't have opportunities, but you really have to keep an eye out and seize those opportunities when they come your way. Yeah, definitely. But- yeah, for sure. And I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, five-year plan and not really having any idea, I was thinking, you know, I believe I have always had a five-year plan and that five-year plan has always been wrong. I, I don't think that, I don't think I've ever actually been five years later where I had projected I would be five years from now. Yeah, that's a good point because I would have to agree. I fall in the same boat. When I stepped out of the classroom eight years ago, I didn't really have a clear plan and I'm definitely not where I thought I would be now. So um, you never know what opportunity is is going to smack you in the face. Would you have guessed, Yuri, that we would be making untold millions of dollars with a really famous <laughs> podcast five years ago? I would have never fathomed that. In my Why are you laughing? Dreams, Stop laughing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, you have been doing a lot of racing, and you've been choosing some really interesting stuff. Favorite race of 2016, what was it? Ooh, that is a very difficult question, because I did lots of new things in 2016. I'm going to have to say the uh, Trans-BC Enduro stage race. Tell us why. I was brand new to enduro racing last year. I had never even ridden a trail bike before until last February. And my first ride on my, on a trail bike was actually a five day enduro stage race in New Zealand. So, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to pause you for a second and <laughs> okay. ask you to explain what trail bike racing is because not all of the goo pinnacle podcast listeners are necessarily mountain bikers or cyclists at all. You know, we got people who run and swim and do other things too. So that's a real specific discipline. So people need to know what that is. So before you talk about the race, talk about the kind of racing. 
Okay, so I'll, I'll first say that typically the type of racing I do is endurance racing. So you go, there's a set start and finish. You go for a really long time, 100 plus miles, sometimes for multiple days, and you're riding a bike with 100 millimeters of travel and a little bit, um, like it's all, uh, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to start using really like geeky technical bike nerd terms. So oh, you riding, can't help it. Just go you're, ahead. You're, you're we'll riding st- basically like a, a bike with less suspension. Mm-hmm. And whenever you get on a trail bike, it's a bike with a lot more suspension and it's meant for not necessarily optimized for the uphill. It's more optimized for changing the angle of your body on the downhill and giving you a lot more cushion on the downhill. So this discipline of racing that I tried last year called enduro racing, it works like this. And this is, I had to learn this on day one of this race. (laughs) So there's a set uh, loop that you're supposed to do for the day. There's a set loop, but there is no, like the uphill is not timed. So you have to get to a certain point. And once you get to that point, you have to get in a line. And this point is a downhill. And most stage races are for enduro are blinds, meaning you don't get to pre-ride the course. You don't get to even know the name of the trail before you ride it. So you're all wow. lined up and you have an RFID chip on your, on your hand for timing. And you put your wrist up to this little timer and then it beeps. And then the adrenaline takes over and your goal is to get to the end of this trail, whatever may be coming your way on this bigger travel, more suspension mountain bike because you need it as fast as you possibly can without basically without crashing. (laughs) And it requires a a different skill set than endurance racing. It requires Mm -hmm. highly tuned technical riding ability in all different types of conditions. And as a mountain biker, you never actually stop learning when it comes to mountain biking and skills. Like you're always learning how to get better. So, the trans BC enduro stage race was my second stage race. The first one I would just referencing was in New Zealand. So this was in BC, the most technical, hardest mountain biking in the world. And I also heard that France is similar, but this race was insane. And it was a hard, one of the hardest, just mentally like hardest things I've ever done because I was scared out of my mind the whole time. Um, first of all, it was pouring rain for six days, the entire race. And for those of you who don't mountain bike, I'm sure if you're a runner, a trail runner, you understand things get really slippery whenever it's wet and then tilt it to like one of the downhills was a 42% grade downhill. So tilt it and add roots and slippery everything's. And I was very nervous. So the reason I love this race so much is that I was able to do things that I never thought I'd be able to do. And because it's coming at you so fast, you, you just are on the trail. You don't know what's coming and you have to make these split second decisions. Am I riding or am I walking or am I crashing? <laughs> <laughs> and I just rode stuff that I never, ever thought that I would be able to ride. And if I went back and rode it and looked at it first, I might not have even be able to ride or, or want to ride it. So it really forced me to be at my super tip top best that I could possibly be in that moment. And that was a really cool thing to see. And it was way outside my comfort zone because I've been endurance racing for like six years and mountain biking for 10 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, to, to come across and try this new discipline 
was really humbling. Like I didn't have the right equipment. I had, I had to like learn all this, like I'm not making excuses, but I had to relearn like, okay, how do I set up my suspension? What, what brand of knee pads do I wear? So they don't fall down. How do I set, like, what am I supposed to do if I get a flat tire? Like I did. And I did. And I actually like ran the, the entire stage (laughs) (laughs) and like, I don't, I don't run anymore. So I like trail ran for like eight minutes as fast as I could with my bike. And this is day one. And then the next, the next four days I was so sore. I could barely walk. Oh yeah. And people kept thinking that I crashed. I was like, no, like I I ran the downhill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was an amazing experience. And I I just, I learned so much and it was just so different from it, from the things that I was used to doing. So it it was great. Can, Can I talk about an event that you competed at this year that, um, didn't go as you had hoped because, you know, We've talked a lot about dealing with failure, um, being brave, you know, dealing with the unexpected. And I think you probably know where I'm heading with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about, uh, you know, 24-hour world solo championships this year in New Zealand. And maybe you can share the story with us and how you dealt with that. Because I think there's a real powerful lesson in what happened to you. Yeah. So in 2015, I won the world championships. And in 2016, I was supposed to go back and defend my title as world champion. Um, so I went to New Zealand and the race was almost, almost exactly a year ago to date actually. And when you mountain bike, you're going to crash and there's going to be freak accidents that happen, um, no matter what. And hopefully they don't happen very often, (laughs) but I was there and I was just out with a friend, like riding the easiest trails, not paying attention. And Honestly, that's when my worst injuries happen is when I'm on the easy trail, not paying attention. I never crash badly on like the really hard stuff. It's when I'm just like mind in the clouds, like do to do. So I'm riding and I'm on a wet bridge and somehow my bike gets turned around and I crash off this bridge and land on my head, crack my helmet, get a severe concussion. And this is two days before I'm supposed to defend my title at the race. And I thought, oh, like, it's fine. It's fine. I'm going to be fine. And I wasn't fine. I, I like, I tried to just pretend like nothing happened and that I was fine. But then I like drove to Rotorua, which was a four hour drive. Um, and I got there and I was supposed to do a talk at the race and people were like asking me all these questions, like, what's your goal? And how do you feel? And I was not myself. Like I was Mm -hmm. so apathetic and so unenthusiastic. And like, I think I literally said (laughs) when someone said, what's your goal? I, I think I said, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Were you, were you aware that you had a concussion at that time? And did you have anybody in your pits like advising you or were they solo? Uh, I was concerned cause I've had a concussion before. I was concerned that I had a concussion, but I just thought it would be better. And I thought it's just going to get better. I'm just going to ignore it. Um, but I knew that there was a problem when I tried to go pre-ride a lap of the course and it took me like a couple hours to ride a lap because I just, I just couldn't, my body wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately a friend of mine, her name is Kath McInerney. She's Australian and she is an occupational therapist and she was going to be in my, in my pit to support me at this race. Um, so she actually did a cognitive assessment on me and said like, you might want to consider, you know, the fact that you have a concussion and I had to make a decision. And this is the day before the race. Like, do I race or do I not? And this is like, that, you know, you're defending your world championship title. It's yours to lose. And I had to make the call to not start the race the next day. And 
in the past, I've done some really stupid things. Like I raced Leadville 100 with a cast on my wrist because I had a broken, I broke my wrist, but I refused to stop racing. And I did the entire Leadville 100 with a, a broken scaphoid, which is one of the hardest bones to heal in the body. And fortunately I got lucky and it healed. And like, I've, I got an, I had a concussion a long time ago and I tried to go to Brazil to race with a concussion thinking I'll, I'll just power through this. And fortunately my bike got lost in like for five days and I couldn't start the race. <laughs> so, you know, I've learned things the hard way and I thought, you know what? I got to think big picture. Like this could, I could die if I crash. And for 24 hours, it's not like I'm doing a two hour race. It's like no. 24 hours. There's a lot of things that goes on physiologically in your body. And if your brain isn't working at the start, like it's not going to end well for you. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, I don't want to say it was a hard decision because it was actually an easy decision to make, but it was a very disappointing decision to have to make. But it, I was happy that I was able to make that decision and that I made the right choice because in the past I would have made the wrong choice and who knows what would have happened to me. Is that, do you think that is maturity, uh, having dealt with it before? Was that, you know, your husband whispering on your shoulder, even though he wasn't there, you know, I mean, w what do you attribute that to? I would attribute, yeah, to maturity and have, you know, having done dumb things in the past, <laughs> but you know, also I attribute it to feeling like I had nothing to prove because I, I think that sometimes I've done dumb things because I feel like I, I felt like I still needed to go out and prove something, hmm. but I just said, I, I don't need to prove anything to myself or to anybody else. Like this is, this is my health and it would be nice to be two-time world champion, but I'm just, that's just not going to happen this year. So I just had to put it aside and rest and then enjoy myself. Like I went and I volunteered at the race. And of course I was upset when I watched the race start without me, but I just had to make the most of a, of a bad situation. And I had a really great time. Like I had more time to hang out with people. And one of my favorite things about traveling is building community and meeting all the locals. So I made some really great friends that weekend and yeah, it sucked I didn't get to race, but I didn't it didn't ruin my trip in, at all. Yeah. And I w I would actually go on to say that uh you actually made someone's race. I, I don't know if you remember uh a a young ra uh woman racer Madeline Bemis. Yeah, I do. From there? Yeah. I so I I interviewed her for a podcast after she uh did that race and she went on and on about how awesome you were. So, oh my gosh, that's so nice. Yeah, I know she's a fantastic kid. Um, you know, a, a real rising star for sure. Um, but you know, she, it, you made a difference. You know, probably didn't even realize it. But yeah, you were making difference to uh, to other women racers right there, right then. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah thanks for telling me that. <laughs> the theme I'm getting is that you're comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think you know, real strength is is making that being able to say, make the right call, but real strength is also saying this is an uncomfortable situation, mm -hmm. but it's okay. And it's okay to be uncomfortable. And I, I think that a lot, a lot of the time we, we shrug, we go, try to avoid being uncomfortable. And I'm guilty of that myself. Like there's lots of situations in my life where I'm mindful enough to catch myself shying away from the pain or shying away from the discomfort, but then stopping and saying, no, like I'm going to swim in it and I'm going to be fine. So let's talk about another thing that has left you mildly uncomfortable. And that is the way you eat. Um, you have a blog post up on your site right now talking about, uh, about, uh, being a vegan and being kind of quiet about it. Why is that the case? 
Yeah, so I was a closet vegan for three and a half years. <laughs> I, uh, you know. <laughs> the um, first step towards recovery, Sonia, is telling us. So thank that's you. Right. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I I didn't want to make people uncomfortable. So I, I actually don't call myself a vegan. I call myself a plant-based athlete because mm-hmm. I do eat honey. I do have things that are made of leather. Um, and there's a very small percentage of time, but there's there, but during that small percentage, I will end up eating meat because there's no other option mm-hmm. because some of the places I travel, there's no option and, and you're, you can't like go to a restaurant cause you're in the middle, you're at a stage race in the middle of nowhere. The race is providing the food. You can only bring so much gear with you and so much stuff. So there are times where I have to be flexible. So, um, I just, yeah, I didn't want people to judge me and, and think that I was some weirdo and think that I, that I was judging them because a lot of times people, whenever I tell people about my diet, like friends or in person, they kind of get defensive about what they eat. And, Mm. you know, I'm not judging people like you can eat whatever you like. And I like, that's cool. But I just wanted to tell people why I eat the way I eat because I actually feel very strongly about it. And what changed my uh, my point of view was actually this podcast I listened to called the Rich Roll Podcast. And if you guys haven't che- if you guys haven't checked out his podcast, he's awesome. I don't know him personally, but he inspired me in a really big way, and inspired me in a way that I haven't felt in a very long time. Like I've been looking for kind of like a role model um, that didn't only embody being a good athlete, but embodied a lot of other qualities that I really really respect. Um, transparency and um, trying to make things better and trying to help other people get better. So yeah, he, he was very honest about what he does and why and the guests he has. And I thought, you know what, I I need to stop being such a coward and tell people that I eat a plant-based diet and I'll tell you why. So I watched a documentary forks over knives. Um, It's on Netflix and there's another one called food choices that is more recent, more modern um, that came out last year. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, my, my, he was my, bo- my boyfriend at the time, now husband told me he was a vegan and I kind of laughed at him because I lived in Boulder at the time and I was like, Oh God, like not some ve- not some other vegan, like, geez, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I had, I had met like a bunch of crazy vegans. So I, I like didn't want to be anything like them. And I thought they were extreme and like, I didn't even ask why they were a vegan. So it was about a year before I finally like decided to look into it for, to, for myself. So as, apart from him, I watched this uh, documentary and the science being reported in this documentary shook me to the core. Like my biggest fear in life is having my life cut short but by, by disease, by heart mm-hmm. disease, by cancer. And it happens to everybody around us. And it, it's, it's, it, and I know, you know, firsthand with that, like it's, it's, it's horrendous. And, um, I thought, you know, I might be able to do something about this. And so I did a bunch of my own research and there's just so many peer reviewed medical journals, like not just like women's health magazine articles, but peer reviewed medical journals showing how eating a plant-based diet irrefutably reduces, greatly reduces your risk of heart disease and cancer. So I did a lot, a lot more, um, research. I contacted lots of people and I thought, wow, like I want to try this, but I'm afraid to because it's July. It's the middle of my season. I'm an endurance mm. athlete. What if I don't get enough protein? The number one question everybody asks um, when, when when they find out about yeah. my diet. 
Um, what if I become anemic? What if I get weak? What if I don't recover? Um, so I, what I did was I just decided to try it and I said, okay, I'm not, I can't do this in an extreme way. So three meals, three meals a day, I have three meals a day or five meals a day or however many you eat one meal a day. I'm still going to eat. Like I mostly, I didn't really eat red meat, but I still ate animal products. I still ate eggs. I still ate fish. I still ate a little bit of cheese. So I said, I'm going to slowly cut this, start cutting this out. And by the end of like a month, I didn't even want the other stuff anymore because hmm. it, I just didn't feel good eating it. And there were times, you know, in, in, in the first three months where I would question myself, like, oh, like I just, I really want that prosciutto pizza. Like it's so good. <laughs> I want that pro. And you know, that's one of the things I miss is specifically like a really good prosciutto pizza. Um, but it, it didn't make me feel good. So basically what happened was my career took off on a tangent that I never imagined. I got like way faster. My recovery times were, were split like in half almost. Like I used to really struggle with recovering after a race and it's paramount in stage racing. Cause you race every day for like seven days. So I just, I just, this, immer- this version of me, um, kind of came out. It was like a metamorphosis and it wasn't just being faster on the bike. Like I felt just there's like a, a more of a skip in my step. Like I started accomplishing things in my life that I didn't think I could off the bike too. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I've, I've been eating that way for three and a half years. I've never once had a problem with feeling weak or any of those things that I was afraid of. Um, I do think it's important though, that you eat a whole foods plant-based diet, meaning you're not eating tons of processed foods, um, that you are, um, keeping like, there's tons of junk food vegans out there eating like French fries and like the tofurkey and <laughs> all that stuff. Um, and that's why you, you see unhealthy vegans is because they're not eating, um, a well-rounded meal. And if you guys are interested, there's a really great website called nutritionfacts.org and it's maintained by a doc named Dr. Gregor. And he has his own book out called how not to die, which is amazing. And an app called the daily dozen. And in this app, um, it has like a checklist basically of everything that you need to eat in a day. So like three servings of legumes, like one serving of cruciferous vegetables, like very specifically. So like I got like actually like over a hundred emails when I wrote that blog post and I wasn't expecting really? to get such, yeah, I wasn't, I was shocked to get this response, um, from everybody. And I loved it because I'm passionate about this and it also forced me to be even more accountable of what I'm telling people. So a big question was like, well, how do I, how do I eat a well, well-rounded diet? So having this as a resource has been really helpful. I mean, you, you sort of touched on it already, but I'm going to be the dummy that asks you, how do you get your protein? So there's actually quite a lot of protein in plants and vegetables. Um, so I get it and from legumes. So I say that I get around hundred grams of protein per day and I'll take you through, like people always ask me, like, what do you eat on a daily basis? So yeah, please for breakfast every morning I have, except at races, cause I have something else to eat. Um, I have steel cut oats with hemp hearts, chia seeds, maple syrup and berries. And more recently I've added in a tablespoon of ground flax. Um, and that's a, a little over 20 grams of protein. And then during my day I eat, I love, there's this bread called squirrely bread by Silver Hills and it's so good. It's a sprouted whole grain um, bread and that two pieces of that with almond butter is about 20 grams of protein. So now you're already at 40 grams of protein and you've only had like two pieces of bread with almond butter and your oatmeal. Then throughout the day I eat 
usually my meal includes a legume, a, a grain and vegetables. And by the end of the day, um, I've had a hundred grams of protein. Like there is a lot, I, I, I wish that I could recite from memory, um, which I, I actually am not there yet from a memorization standpoint, but if you Google, um, protein and vegetables, there's a lot, it's like really surprising. And there's mm. a lot of protein in, in whole grains too. So I would love for you, I mean, you kind of touched on them, but I would love to know, you know, what do you eat on race day? And, and perhaps more specifically, uh, what do you eat while you are actually racing? Great question. So I've experimented like back when I was a non-vegan, I loved having eggs, rice, cheddar cheese, and sun-dried tomatoes as my pre-race breakfast. Mm -hmm. Um, I've actually found out since that I'm allergic to eggs, like I have like a crazy inflammatory response in my body. So that helps me stay motivated to not eat eggs anymore. (laughs) Um, I've tried eating like granola before a race, which I actually like threw up on, on one of the trails in Arkansas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so what I like the morning of a race is just two pieces of bread, sometimes three with almond butter and honey. That's it. And some coffee and I'm good to go. What about the night before? I mean, I assume you're packing in the calories a couple nights before. What would you eat, uh, you know, the day or two before an event? Uh, I don't really change my diet very much. Like I, I, it's usually a a grain of some kind or sometimes like I like gluten-free pasta. Like I don't eat gluten-free, but I prefer the taste of brown rice pasta. Um, I don't like carbo load or do any of that stuff. I just eat kind of what I normally eat, but I mean, I, I do avoid overly spicy foods the night before a race. Just, hmm. Like I won't have like enchilada sauce or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> because it maybe affects your sleep or, uh, it could affect your, uh, your bowel movements in the morning potentially. Yep. If you eat too, like I love spicy food, so I'll just eat like a lot of, I'll put like a hmm. lot, a lot of hot sauce on or, you know, chili sauce or whatever. And then that could be bad for you in the morning. <laughs> My fellow New Mexicans will probably be laughing at, at the. At <laughs> <laughs> so carb loading has kind of fallen out of favor in general, hasn't it? It used to be that that was the thing that, you know, everyone, you know, eat a ton of pasta the night before a big event. Is that, is that sort of fallen out of favor as far as, uh, as far as you know, as well, Yuri? Definitely. It seems like more well-rounded meal with, with protein and some more vegetables thrown in seems to be what people are, are doing these days, at least in my small circle of friends. People actually ask me quite a bit what I eat in races, especially because I do really long races like hundred milers or, you know, my next race will be like five to eight hours of racing every day. Um, I keep it pretty simple. I, I do. I, I really like goo roctane. That's my go-to because it has amino acids in it and it's more calories than a typical isotonic sports drink. Um, I like the tropical fruit and the grape. So I typically have per, I, I swap one bottle of water and then one bottle of goo roctane, one bottle of water, one bottle of goo roctane, because what happens to a lot of people is they have way too much sugar and not enough pure water, and then they end up not being able to absorb the sugar, um, or they get severely dehydrated because your body starts pulling water from elsewhere in your body to help digest. And then you have to get an IV at the finish line, which that's been me a few times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's no fun. No, so I I usually, um, people ask me how I eat gel on the race course, but years ago I switched to using a flask for two reasons. Number one, you're guaranteed not to litter because like it's hard to pull open a gel and not have the little like tab fly out of your fingers when you're racing. Um, so I put 
like four or five gels in a flask. I put water in the flask the night before and I shake it up. And then when it's in my pocket, I can like basically like drink it. And mm-hmm. it's really quick to get the gel down. There's a little bit of water with it. But I always have water, roctane, and gel on board. And then I usually have um, a bar on me because sometimes I'll feel like I won't be a low blood sugar, but I get like I'm kind of hungry. Like I'm kind of like I want something to eat it's like that's chewy. So yeah. I'll eat a bar of some kind or sometimes chomps. Um, but I like to have something with a little bit of fat in it. But I think that your nutrition plan really is based on like how your body operates. For me, um, even though I'm an endurance athlete, I burn a lot of sugar. And if you do a, a basic physiology test in your town, they can tell you kind of where the where this switch happens. And even for endurance races, I'm able to push myself in a zone where I'm burning a lot of sugar. So I need to be replacing that. It's really good knowledge to have uh, as a racer to know what your body is is like drawing upon. And I like how you mentioned the need to take in plain water too. I think a lot of athletes forget about that, particularly when you're ingesting gels. You need to counteract that with water. Yeah, and when it's hot out, I dilute my sports drink even more. So like instead of two scoops, I do one scoop. Yeah. What is this? Oh, go ahead, Fatty. I was just going to say I also love running uh, Roctane Week. Um, just, yeah, just for uh, taste and texture preference for myself. It's funny. I'm kind of the opposite. I will yeah. run my Roctane extra strong for mm-hmm. the calories, but then make sure that every like sip of Roctane I take, I'm taking water too. So yeah, um, it's yeah. funny. We all have our own approach to it. Yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> be too surprised if we all wind up having the same amount of, uh, you know, the same amount of liquid per scoop in, in the end. It's just sort of how you mix it. Do you mix it on the fly or do you mix it uh, early? So uh, it's like James Bond. <laughs> how do you like your drink mixed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shaken, not stirred. Um, so Sonia, since you and I are going to the same place very soon, maybe we should talk about where, where we're headed next. Can you yeah. tell us where we're going? Both of you are make, about to make me super jealous. I, I kind of want to just like give our, give our audience some hints so that they can try to guess it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Go ahead. So, okay. So you have to help me though. Okay. Okay. First hint is uh, Lord of the Rings. Second hint is think Alps. Third hint is sweet as. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Not everybody's going to get that one. I I know Uh, where you're going, and I don't know what that one means. Yeah. Fourth hint would be, and this is sort of an unfortunate one, they've been hit with a couple of earthquakes. Yeah. Fifth hint is two islands. I think think they can guess by now. Hopefully, yeah. Fatty, can you guess? I can guess, um, but like I said, I, I I knew before the podcast began. But I would have got it on the Lord of the Rings one. I would have got it on the first guess. I gave so. it away too. I gave it away too soon. Just that, that was I'm always so one. obvious. That's like my mom. Like growing up, she'd always get mad at me. Like when I when I'd have a crush on a boy or something, she'd be like, "You're just so obvious." Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. I think that. Yuri might have actually mentioned where you're going in the intro to the podcast, too. <laughs> did I? I think I did. See, yeah. <laughs> That's horrible right. here. It was still a fun game. It was fun. Well, we're going to New Zealand. So, and you guys should all go to New Zealand sometime. It's actually really easy to get there from the United States. Tell us about the race you're doing. 
Well, I want Yuri to, to talk a little bit about it, too. Yeah, we can talk with Yuri sure. anytime. Uh, oh, <laughs> no. Dang. No. Ouch. That was cold, wasn't it? You can Go ahead. You start, Sonia. All right. So Yuri and I are both going to a race in New Zealand called the Pioneer Stage Race. And it's a seven-day stage race across the South Island in the Alps of New Zealand. If you didn't know there is Alps there, there are. Um, from Christchurch to Queenstown. And I do believe, I have, Yuri's done it before, but I haven't. I think it's going to be like in the top three hardest stage races I've ever done, specifically because of the length of each day. Yes. So speaking of the length, it in total, there's 338 miles and just over 50K of climbing. And I will agree, having raced it last year, it will probably be one of the hardest stage races, maybe with the exception of uh, the Yak Attack, which we didn't even get to talk about, Sonia. Uh, it's a really hard race due to the climbing, but the views are amazing. I mean, Gandalf could be around any tussock bush uh, waiting for you, for sure. And the people in New Zealand are incredible. Like, it's just such a great community, and everybody's so fun, and the water, the color of the water in New Zealand, the lakes is just incredible. It's like this blue. It's, it's, you we always see pictures of Banff and stuff. It's, it's like that, the color of the water. And yeah, it, it, it's truly, it's truly out of this world. It's, it's, it's not something that, uh, most people ever get to experience with the exception of seeing it, like you said, in Lord of the Rings. Um, and beyond that, one of the other really cool things about this event is that they've been able to work with local landowners uh, to access large swaths of sheep track land that only the farmer and his sheep have seen. Even local Kiwis haven't seen a lot of the, the areas that we are going. So you're in super remote uh, mountain ranges um, on, you know, single track, maybe double track, at, um, hopefully. Uh, and the other cool thing, I, although I never did it, is the water is so clean there that you can just drop your bottle in the water in the creeks and scoop it up. I saw many a racer refill in a in a creek, just just no problem. Blew my mind. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I'll be trying that at a stage race. <laughs> no, I will not either. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be really exciting. Um, it's summer there, and for me personally, you know, I live in Canada now, and. We've had a really hard winter and you can't ride outside basically at all. Like I've gone fat biking a couple of times, but you can't really pedal. You have to kind of, you can pedal a little bit, but it's more pushing your bike. So most of my training like has been on the trainer in my garage. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes because I, I actually have had really good workouts, really good structured workouts. I have a Wahoo fitness kicker and I use trainer road as my training program and it's cool because you can really see the gains that you're making. And I, I, I would like to say that, and I, I hope this is true, that I'm strong. I'm really strong going into this race and I feel really good about my preparation. And I had foot surgery in October and I like couldn't, I couldn't walk at all for a month or ride a bike. So I think the break was actually really good for me um, to recharge. So I'm, I'm excited about this and I'm racing with um, a really awesome guy. His name is Gordon Wadsworth and he's from North Carolina He's one of the most fun, upbeat, hilarious, positive people I've ever met. And to like go through this journey of this really hard race with him is going to be so fun because 
we're going to be able to just feed off each other's positive energy and have more fun than almost anybody out there. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, Sonia, and it has nothing to do with, with bike racing, um, is your, you know, career as a motivational speaker and specifically the fact that you gave a Ted talk, you know, Rebecca Rush recently gave a Ted talk and said it was one of the most, uh, overwhelming, scary scary things that she has done. And we're talking about the queen of pain. So, um, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your Ted talk experience was like and what you spoke about. Yeah. So, you know, generally I'm very comfortable with public speaking because I'm very extroverted and I try not to talk about things that I like. I think a lot of people get nervous about public speaking if they talk about a subject they don't really know a whole lot about. Um, And like whenever you're giving like a motivational speech or telling your own story, it's 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 a lot easier because it's your story. Mm. (laughs) You're not reporting data from somebody else. Um, The hardest part for me about the TED Talk was that it's a different format than I'm used to. So I've given lots of keynotes um, in all different industries and different conferences, and you get an hour and you get to talk. So a TED Talk is 18 minutes or less. A TED Talk needs to be word for word memorized, which I don't. Yeah. And I... I don't like that. Um, I'm not a memorizer. I'm more of a speak from the heart type of person. So to memorize it and practice it over and over, I'm horrible at acting. Like any, t- I, I've had to do like videos for for cycling, and I did one with MSN Travel like a year and a half ago, and they were feeding me lines, and I was I like I can't act, just period. So <laughs> to to try and like memorize, even if it's my own lines, to memorize it and spit it back out again. I just felt inauthentic and I didn't feel like my energy and my passion was there because I, before that was my, my fear was I've practiced this thing over and over. I know every line. Um, Hmm. so now when I say it, is it going to come out sounding like it does in practice? Because I don't like the way it sounds in practice. Um, and, and when I got there, it actually went really well. Like I felt the, I really like to feed off the energy of the audience and I loved being able to see all the people near the front. Um, I couldn't see the entire audience, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, being able to feed off of the energy of the people. And that instantaneously brought my passion and all, uh, all of the exuberance behind public speaking back. And I think it, it went well. Um, it's just, it's hard because again, it's like has to fit in this format. And because of the fact that it's a Ted talk, because that, it has this like prestigious name. You want it to be good. You want so badly for it to go well and to be good. And then you start putting all this pressure on yourself. Like, oh, this has to be amazing. Um, and that's the hardest thing to get, to get over is getting out there and just t- like taking away all the pressure and just saying, I'm going to go out there and be myself. And what happens happens. And hopefully it goes well. <laughs> Did you blank out or were you able to remember the whole thing? No, um, I remembered the whole thing. Yeah, it, it went I felt like stoked. It went really well. And that's awesome. I mean, I didn't have as much time as I would have liked to prepare the speech itself. The whole preparation process was very rushed because when I did the the TEDx that I did, um, they didn't make their final selections until just a few weeks before Hmm. the event. So I didn't even know I was doing it. (laughs) Well, that's less time to be scared anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, I could have done a little bit better of a job writing the speech um, but I think that I gave the speech really well and I, I loved it. And I love 
that people email me about my TED talk and just tell me all these personal, wonderful stories about how it helped them because that's why I do this. That's why I, I, in my TED talk, I'm like, there's a video of me like bawling, which I like, if people know me in person, not even my, like hardly anybody's ever seen me cry in my adult life. So to put that on a TED talk and show that vulnerability was a really big deal for me. And it was uncomfortable, like standing there while it's playing and watching everybody being like, oh my God, like, what do I do now? How am I supposed to react to this? Yeah. I was going to ask about that. That's sort of why I, I tilted my hat to the to the yak attack because I've, I've seen that video. I remember that video that you're talking about. Um, but, you know, I mean, kudos to you for being brave enough to show you are also vulnerable like everybody else out there in the audience. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure it empowered people to see that, uh, you know, this 24-hour solo world champion, she even cries from time to time. Yeah, you know, I think vulnerability is one of the most important things because vulnerability and hum- humility kind of go hand in hand a little yeah. bit. Um, and it's it's if you're trying to connect with your fellow human being, we, we all are vulnerable and we all want people to like us and we all have the same, like, I guess you can call it insecurities. And being able to share that honestly with one another is what makes a really strong connection with somebody. So true. So true. Sonia, how can people follow you on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever else in the social media world that they go? Yeah. So the easiest way to find all of them at once is go to sonyalooney.com and all of my social media channels are on there. But I'm most active on Instagram and Facebook and Facebook. If you just search my name, Sonia Looney, my athlete page comes up and give it a like and give me a shout. And, uh, Instagram is Looney Sonia. Um, I love, I love hearing from people. I read every single comment and I respond to every single message and, um, yeah. And it's, it's me. Like it's not somebody else doing my social media page for me. Not your personal assistant. No, (laughs) my minions, (laughs) But yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Um, so yeah, come come over and say hi or, or don't, but I, I'd love to meet you guys. Awesome. So you are going to, for sure, in your social media channels, uh, talk about this uh, New Zealand race you've got coming up, right? Absolutely. Just, you'll just be getting, make sure. Yeah, you'll be getting posts about it during the race for Ooh. probably a while after the race. Um, I'm going to be writing a couple articles about it. And I also have a newsletter. So if you want to sign up for my newsletter, um, it's on my Facebook. There's like a blue button that says sign up and I'll be sending out newsletters about uh, the race and, and a bunch of other good stuff too. We should do some, we should do some Facebook live stuff while we're there, Sonia. Yeah, that'd be really sweet. We should definitely do that. Okay. All (laughs) right. That's a brilliant idea. Hopefully no crying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, (laughs) you mean me. I'll be the one who's probably crying this time. As a, as a Kiwi say, they say whinging. <laughs> quit, quit your whinging. Quit your whinging. So speaking of Kiwis, Fatty, since you didn't know, sweet as, that's a, that's a Kiwi phrase for like, I don't know, right on or cool oh. or something like that. So there you yeah. go. Okay. Sweet as. Well, fantastic. It's, it's good. I've learned something. Actually, I've learned a lot because, Sonia, you are an amazing person. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today and i think we're going to go ahead and say that that's it for this episode of the pinnacle so folks if you haven't subscribed yet go to itunes and do it and then whenever yuri and i get on the mic for a new episode you'll just get it automatically on your phone or tablet or what have you and while you're at it 
Give us a nice five-star review or seven stars or nine stars. Give us all the stars. And that's probably enough about stars. I'm Fatty. And for Yuri and all the athletes and experts at Goo, thanks so much for listening to the Goo Pinnacle Podcast.